Hi everyone, I'm Yo. And I'm Ben. Welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. Today, we are really excited to have a conversation with Henry Sanderson about his book, Vote Rush. Henry is the executive editor of Benchmark Mineral Intelligence and author of Vote Rush, the winners and losers of the race to go green. In this very well-researched book, Henry presents the battery technologies, the material essential for EV batteries, and the leading players in this industry. As you will see throughout the book, many Chinese companies are now playing a central role in the EV battery supply chain, and we will focus our discussion on these players. As always, grateful if you can take the time to rate and comment on the show. It helps listeners to find us. Thanks, and on with the show. Hi, Henry. Welcome on the show. Could you introduce yourself and explain what was your motivation to write this book, Vault Rush? Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. My motivation for writing the book was really to explain to readers that the supply chain behind clean energy technologies such as lithium-ion batteries and electric vehicles and give them a sense of the scale of the challenge that, in essence, the electric vehicle doesn't just arrive at your door, the solar panel, wind turbine. We need to build out these supply chains. And at the root of them is the raw materials that we need to mine to meet the huge demand for clean energy technology. So I wanted to open people's eyes about the challenges of building these supply chains and the geopolitics of it as well, how China has a dominant position in a lot of these supply chains and how that impacts the West's efforts to meet their own climate change targets. And I think since I've written the book, this topic has become much more mainstream, which is really great to see and heartening to see that this issue is really front and center now of a lot of climate change and clean energy discussions. Thanks so much, Henry. Now, this is an excellent book and highly praised by the critics. And I really enjoyed one point in the book that you were covering the personal path of some of the main leaders in these industries and the origin story of the companies they are steering. For example, the chapter on Ponce Laro from SQM in Chile was mm-hmm. interesting. And maybe two elements I'd like to mention about your book and to structure our conversation is first, your book is centered around the critical matter for lithium-ion battery, most notably related to NMC chemistry, so for which lithium, nickel, and cobalt are the necessary material for the battery cathode. The second point is talking about EV battery mineral globally. A large part of the book is necessarily centered around China and the role of the key Chinese players, such as CATL, Kanfan, Tianqi Lithium, Huayo, Cobalt, and Qingsan. So those two points will be restructuring for our conversation. And as we will cover some of the subjects, which will be around battery, lithium, cobalt, and nickel. And we also cover these uh, topics through the lens of the leading Chinese player in this sector. Of note, you, in your book, you actually don't cover the LFP chemistry, which is a really interesting development, yes. but which I think will need another full episode on that. So we, we won't cover this. <laughs> With that said, I think it would be interesting if you can start by giving an overview of what role does China play in the EV battery supply chain. Yeah, thanks so much. You know, you're right about LFP, and I probably should have had more of that in the book and maybe in the next one. But China really has a dominant position throughout the supply chain, but but actually less on the mining side, but mostly in the processing of the minerals and then the production of battery materials, and then production of lithium-ion batteries. So it's all those other stages. Once the material has been dug up, how do you actually transform the material into a final product? There are exceptions to that, though. In graphite and rare earths, China has both the mining and the 
processing and the production of the final products. So rare earth permanent magnets in China produces 90% and it also mines a lot of the rare earths and graphite as well. But things like lithium, nickel, cobalt, the mining is actually done outside China and China has to import these minerals. But basically in your electric vehicle today, it's very hard to produce an EV without any involvement from China because these companies are so dominant in a lot of these stages of the supply chain. So we see that even while Tesla is starting to build its own batteries and make its own process, its own lithium, it's quite reliant on China and the Chinese supply chain. So China really has been extremely successful in capturing a lot of the value that goes into the electric vehicle battery. Yeah, and thanks so much. Let's start speaking about battery and especially one dominating company, which is Nindo Shudai or CATL which is yeah. one of the biggest success in the energy transition. The company is leading the manufacturing of EV batteries and was founded in 2011 and now has a market cap of about 140 billion. Can you talk yes. about the role played by CITR in the global battery value supply chain and share about the personal story of its founder, Robin Zen? Yeah, so CATL is a giant. It's responsible for a third of all lithium-ion battery production, but it really has supply agreements with all the major automotive companies that you can think of, Tesla, you know, a lot of German automakers and Chinese automakers. So it's really, I'd say, the sort of backbone of the electric vehicle industry. And it had a relatively late start to the EV battery industry. Obviously, there were other companies before but I think what CATL has done so well is scaling up production remarkably quickly and bringing costs down and producing quality batteries reliably and also really developing LFP technology and also innovating in terms of how you put these batteries together, how you improve the energy density. So it's become a massive, reliable supplier. And I think it's hard to for Western companies to keep up or to produce a rival to CATL because it keeps getting bigger and bigger thanks to its scale. And I think what is interesting is it does tell the story of China quite well, the history of that company. That's why I chose them because the founder, Robin Zhang, really, he didn't grow up in wealth or, or anything like that. He grew up in a village outside Ningda and he left the state sector to go south to southern China to Dongguan, and he made his start in southern China, which was obviously opening up and attracting a lot of foreign investment. And then he helped found ATL, which made batteries for mobile phones and consumer electronics, and really took some of the business away from Japan at the time and made batteries cheaper. So he had all this experience making batteries for consumer electronics, so that when he could see that the Chinese government was serious about subsidizing electric vehicles, he broke away and formed CATL, which purely focused on electric vehicles. And it was perfect timing because it really benefited from a lot of the subsidies Beijing started to dole out and also some of the protectionist measures that they put in place where Japanese and Korean battery manufacturers were essentially banned from the market. So CATL was in a perfect position to benefit. And actually, it got its start. It's interesting that BMW helped them at the beginning. They're one of their main clients. But by 2017, CATL had overtaken Panasonic as the world's largest lithium-ion battery producer in terms of sales. And it's just gone from strength to strength. And I think now what we see is real innovation coming out of CATL with sodium-ion, with other technologies. So I think it's interesting to see now where we go from, are they almost too big or can they sort of innovate and keep maintaining their market share? But they're definitely a huge success story for China. No, exactly. It's really impressive what the company has achieved and there is 
largely dominating this market now. One really important uh, component of the lithium-ion battery is, of course, lithium. And the lithium is produced mainly in Australia and Chile, who are uh, essentially uh, two leading producers globally. The type of lithium deposit in this country are very different. So in Chile, lithium is essentially extracted from lithium brine, and Australia is extracted from a rock which is called the spodumene. Can you explain how lithium extracted and the processes related in these two countries and why the lithium extracted from the spodonine is seven times more carbon intensive than the lithium extracted from lithium brine? Yeah, so I think if you look at lithium suppliers today, yeah, Australia is the, the biggest supplier and as you say, followed by Chile. Chile really changed the market in the late 90s when it started producing lithiums from brine. Because essentially the brine is pumped up from below the Atacama Desert in the salt flats and they use the sunlight to evaporate it in different ponds until they get to a more purified lithium solution that's then uh, further processed and purified to lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. And Australia is quite a different method. It's more the classic mining method where rock is dug up, so-called spodumene, which is lithium-containing rock. And they still have to process it on site, but essentially they export to China a rock containing about 6% lithium, which is then further processed in China by roasting and to high temperatures. So the carbon footprint um, of that route is much higher than the lithium from brine because you're using the sunlight to evaporate the lithium in Chile. But there are other concerns about lithium in Chile, such as water, because it's very arid dry region. When you visit the Atacama Desert, it's extraordinarily barren, but there is lots of life there. And also communities rely on the water that's there. So there are lots of concerns about if you expand lithium production there, what's that do to some of the ecological impacts of that? So each method has its different issues. But essentially what Australia wants to do now is to, to process more of the lithium in Australia into a higher value product so that perhaps also through innovation and other methods that could be a way of reducing those carbon emissions. So that's the challenge for Australia. But you're right, it is not an ideal system where you're exporting spodumene concentrate to China to be further processed, often using coal-fired power, natural gas in China. So those emissions need to come down. Yeah, that's interesting on the global lithium extraction methods. So I think now we can take a look at the giants in the lithium industry. Could you explain how Chinese firms like Ganfeng Lithium and Tianqi Lithium are involved in the lithium supply chain and how they have built their dominance over the years? Yeah, so it's a really interesting story because if you look at lithium, you know, in fact, the US used to be a huge producer decades ago. And then we had American companies such as FMC, which is now Livent, going into Argentina quite early on. And obviously SQM in Chile starting production in the 90s. But now, uh, over the last decade, 15 years, the, the Chinese companies, Tianqi Lithium and Ganfei Lithium, really expanded extraordinarily fast. And they were investing in, in new capacity, much more than the Western companies at the time. So we saw some extraordinary deals, such as Tianqi Lithium buying the biggest, best lithium mine on the planet, the Greenbushes mine in Australia, and then buying a stake in, SK, in Chile. So they really expanded very fast. And Gamfen Lithium, the same, a lot of assets overseas or invested 
equity stakes in assets, and they have brought on their first overseas project that they've developed in Argentina for production this year, the Calchari project. So both these companies have sort of come out of nowhere to really be quite dominant suppliers, you know, Ganfen supplies Tesla, for example. And also the key thing is that they have managed to hone the skill of processing the lithium in China in, in a cost-efficient manner. And it's quite hard to actually do that, to, to produce high purity battery grade lithium that's actually going to go in your electric vehicle. You don't want your EV to, to explode or catch fire. So you need very high purity. So they've simultaneously honed that skill in China, but also gone overseas to invest in projects. And you see it's still happening. You know, Gampeng's invested in Africa. And only recently have we seen the sort of Western lithium companies invest in a new project, a new supply, but it's taken too long. So these Chinese companies have had a real head start. The question now, though, is with some of the hostility in the West, in Canada and elsewhere, what's their future? Are their best days over in terms of securing overseas resources? So that's the challenge for them now. Australia has probably got much more tricky for them. So Africa is a key place and South America as well. That's interesting because I think that's really a theme in your book where we can see that all these Chinese players have really built their dominance because they invested and went really early, whether it was in the lithium, the cobalt, or the nickel space. But those companies were investing heavily at the time where Western companies were not really looking at these minerals. Let's talk about cobalt. Cobalt is really interesting because its production is concentrated in one country and there are some issues around the extraction due to child labor. But can you start by presenting the role of the Congo DRC in the global cobalt supply chain and essentially the role played by two of the dominant players, which are Fuyo Cobalt and Glencore? Yeah, so it's, cobalt is fascinating because the Democratic Republic of Congo has such dominance in the mining of cobalt. It's produced as a byproduct of copper in the DRC, where you have this incredibly rich belt of minerals centered around Kowesi, uh, Lubumbashi in the sort of southeast of DRC. So they're producing over 70% of the world's cobalt. So they really have such a dominant supply. I mean, quite early on, the Chinese obviously realized they had to go to the country to secure the resources to feed the processing plants and industrial supply chain in China. And Huayo Cobalt was one of those pioneers going to the DRC relatively early and setting up plants in the country and buying a lot from artisanal mining, which is the hand mining where ordinary people just go out with sticks and shovels to, to mine cobalt by hand. So China really buys and still buys a lot of that sort of artisanal material. And a lot of that material gets sent to China to be processed. And then the other side, you have Glencore, which is a big industrial miner, which has operations in the DRC, which look very much like other industrial mining operations, which are huge, huge plants. And they are the biggest cobalt producer in the world. But China has caught up in that side as well, because there was an extraordinary deal where China Molybdenum bought the 10K mine a few years ago from a US mining company, Freeport McMoran, a copper producer. So China now is not only a big industrial producer in the DRC, but it also buys a lot of the artisanal supply. The issue with cobalt is that the amount of cobalt in the battery has come down for cost reasons and other concerns. But also Indonesia is now emerging as a bigger producer because it's also produced alongside nickel in Indonesia. So the market is actually quite well supplied at the moment. And indeed, prices have gone down. So there is somewhat of a surplus in the market at the moment. But definitely, even though the amount of cobalt has gone down in the battery, the scale of battery production that we're talking, cobalt demand is still going to be pretty robust this decade, for sure. So 
yes, China has a very dominant position in the processing side. During my book, I not only visited the DRC, I saw whether cobalt was mine, but I also visited bio cobalt in China and I saw the big bags of cobalt at their plant, which had come from the DRC. So I saw both ends of the process. We were just talking about uh, Congo's DRC's significant role in the cobalt supply chain. So I think despite that, there is a more concerning aspect, right? So a big issue with the cobalt extraction comes from artisanal mining and child labor in Congo DRC. So can you talk about this Amnesty 2016 report and maybe touch on its impact and the challenges of tracing the shores of cobalt in the value chain? Yeah, so Amnesty was not the first, but it was a really landmark report because I think the situation was before electric vehicles so for consumer electronics, etc. No one had paid too much attention to cobalt and it also wasn't officially a conflict mineral because where it's mined in the DRC is not an area of, of conflict. So I think there hadn't been that much focus on it, but Amnesty really drew people's attention because it came just as electric vehicle sales were accelerating and EVs were coming more into mass market consciousness thanks to Tesla. And it really showed not only the terrible situation there, but the deaths, the child labor, the poor working conditions, but also the fact that many of the end-using companies had no idea what was going on or hadn't traced their supply chain uh, properly. And also really put a lot of attention on Hoyo Cobalt, showing that they are one of the main buyers and what were they doing about this. And I think following the report, we saw a lot more attention on the issue. And some car makers, I think, had a slightly wrong approach of saying, well, we won't source from the DRC at all. We don't want the risk of child labor at all. But I think others, including Tesla, tried to engage more, tried to, to visit and tried to come up with ways to, you know, th- try to alleviate the situation. Although we still haven't seen a car maker uh, come out and say they're happy to buy artisanal material. They're happy to buy from areas that have been improved where efforts have been made to improve the situation. So we're still a long way from that. And in the meantime, this material is just going into the market. We don't necessarily know where all of it is going. So I think we do need to engage with the DRC. We do need to not just run away. And there are efforts being made to make sure these people get a fair price to try and improve the working conditions. But it's a difficult situation with no easy solutions. But the perfect shouldn't be the enemy of the good. We can't expect it to be perfect, but we're looking for improvements, I think. And I think that's what we need to see. And many of these people don't have other options. They don't have other economic opportunities. So of course, they're going to go and mine for cobalt copper, especially when prices are high. So we need to really focus on the situation. But I think Amnesty really started it off. And since then, there's been lots of other media reports and investigations into the situation. But we need to be careful that, you know, this is a livelihood for these people. This is a way to make a living. They don't have other opportunities often. So we don't want to not buy material from these people. So we need to see improvement. That's the way I think of it. Definitely was interesting to note in the book that essentially Huayo tried to help improve the condition on the ground, but then there are also other companies that are buying from the intermediary. So I think it's a challenging issue for the car makers and for the miners to solve. 
The other material that we haven't talked yet is nickel. You have a chapter called Dirty Nickel, and we'll discuss about the environmental impact of nickel. But there's one Chinese company which is quite dominant, and I've seen in a lot of projects in Indonesia, which is Chinsan. Can you introduce Chinsan yes. and talk about how the company has positioned itself to benefit from Indonesian ban of export of raw ore in 2020 and how it succeeded in dominating the nickel industry with specifically this, its investment in the Mohawali industrial park? Yeah, so Chinshan is an extraordinary story of Chinese growth founded in 1988 in Wenzhou. And it's really massively expanded to be the biggest nickel producer and stainless steel producer in the world. Its revenue is in over 28 billion. So what they did is Indonesia has the world's biggest nickel reserves. And they essentially realized, much like other Chinese companies, that they needed the nickel for their business to survive. So why not go to the source of the nickel and invest there? And, and that's exactly uh, what they did with the Morowali Industrial Park. And it also aligned with Indonesia's policy goals of having more value add in the country, not just exporting raw materials. So they were there just slightly before Indonesia introduced a ban on nickel exports, which essentially meant if you want to get hold of their nickel, you have to come invest in the country. And that's what Chinshan had done and has done since. So as a result, they have ready access to full supplies of nickel. In a sense, you know, China's offshoring some of its pollution and the environmental impacts of this industry, but it fits perfectly in with what Indonesia wants. And when the EV industry came along, Chinshan also became involved in processing nickel for electric vehicles. And it's also gone further downstream with having its own battery company energy storage company. So it's a really a giant in this industry. And I think Indonesia is the only place where big investment in nickel and nickel processing is happening. So there isn't going to be electric vehicles without Indonesia this decade. And Chinchan's in the perfect place to capitalize on that thanks to its investments. Now, of course, there are debates about whether Indonesia's ban was legal and Europe brought a WTO case against Indonesia because of it. There are questions, but there's no doubt it's been successful as a policy and Qingshan has benefited from that. But I think the issue now is, as I say, some of the environmental impacts of that production, safety issues of labor, working there, local people, and also the use of coal-fired power, right? Indonesia has a net zero target. Indonesia needs to clean up. And if this nickel is going to electric vehicles, it also needs to clean up. So that's some of the questions that face this industry. And it was also interesting to note that you tell well in the book that in 2019 on the LME in London, there were a lot of purchases of yep. nickel ahead of the ban. I think on the commodity market, this is not a restriction. And Chinsen, I think, already had positioned itself to benefit from the ban at the time. I think another point that you mentioned was essentially that nickel and especially the production of stainless steel actually needs a lot of energy. And that has an environmental impact with the grid in Indonesia being reliant mainly on coal. So it would be interesting if you can expand on the environmental impact of processing nickel for stainless steel in many of the processing plants in Maui and how the CO2 emission from these plants compare with stainless steel pr produced in other parts of the world. Yes. So basically, you know, the route is slightly different for stainless steel and for batteries. For batteries, most of the nickel is 
using a HPAL high pressure acid leaching process, which is lower emissions than the furnaces, rotary kiln electric furnaces that are using to produce a nickel for stainless steel. They're the most carbon intensive. But the problem is a lot of the power source, as I say, is coal-fired power. And a lot of the plants have their own captive coal-fired power plants. So that's really the issue. And the other issue is because of the demand for nickel in EVs, Qingshan and others started to take some of the nickel for stainless steel and then reprocess it for use to produce nickel sulfate for electric vehicle batteries. And that's high emissions. So that was a, a concern as well. The, what is so interesting about the nickel market is you mentioned the LME is that a few years ago, bet, you know, one way they bought up a lot of nickel because they could see Indonesia was going to ban exports. But then they got into a lot of trouble last year when they were massively short nickels because they could see all this supply coming on in Indonesia. But actually the Russian invasion of Ukraine caused the price to spike. So they made huge losses on that bet. So they haven't always got it right, but essentially they were right. Just the timing was wrong that all this investment has created a lot of nickel supply. So at the moment, the market is looking quite so well supplied with all these nickel projects. But you're right. The issue is even with the HPAL, how do you reduce those emissions even further? Mm. So now let's talk about deep sea mining. The International Seabed Authority failed to meet its deadline to enact a regulation on deep sea mining. This has generated a lot of media coverage recently on the sector. So, Henry, could you explain to our listeners what is deep sea mining? Or more specifically, what is dredging? Also, can you share your thoughts on whether deep sea mining is worthwhile exploring as a means of meeting the world demand for transitional metals while limiting its potential impact on the environment? Yeah, so you know, deep sea mineral extraction is in the spotlight at the moment because we're getting closer to a time where we could see it begin. There's three different sort of routes, but what most people are followed, focused on is the italic nodules on the seabed. And these, you know, according to the companies, can just be literally picked up from the seabed and then processed into battery materials. And the interesting thing is they do contain all in one nodule, a lot of the battery minerals, manganese, cobalt, nickel, etc. So unlike a land-based mine where you may just have one mineral, they contain a few in one nodule. So the issue is that the International Seabed Authority, which is a United Nations body that was set up as part of the law of the sea, set up in 1994 to come up with rules uh, to allow deep sea extraction, it's still working on these rules. And they, they finished their most recent meeting last month. And they've decided to extend the deadline and possibly by 2025 have final rules. But in international waters, which is what they look after, you know, deep sea extraction can't really go ahead till these rules are all agreed. And they're quite complicated because under the UN law of the sea, the resources are defined as a common benefit of humankind. And also resource-rich countries who mine on land shouldn't be disadvantaged by deep sea mining. So they need to come up with a mining code that takes that into account. And also they need to work out royalties because it is a, defined as a common resource of humankind. Everyone should benefit. So the ISA, the International Seabed Authority, is set to receive royalties once mining starts. So they need to work out the mining code, the regulations, the royalties, etc. But they're getting closer. And it looks like 2024, 2025, we could see real progress. And what's interesting, actually, is China has been by all accounts, more active in the most recent discussion in trying to push forward 
the regulations and China actually has the most contracts for exploration at the moment and they could convert those to exploitation contracts once the rules are finalized. So yes, it looks like it could potentially be coming, but many people still are calling for a moratorium or for more scientific study and even big consumer companies have called for moratorium. So whether it's going to be accepted by everyone is another matter. We're in a situation where we've already degraded our planet so much, right? We have a biodiversity crisis. We have the oceans, record high temperatures. So are we willing to accept the risks of a deep sea extraction? Because nothing is without risks, nothing's without impact when it comes to extraction. So that's really the question. On the other hand, the companies say that, well, look at mining on land in Indonesia, that's the biodiverse hotspot, et cetera. So there's still questions to be answered, but every side has a point. But I think ISA is the right venue because you've got 168 countries there. It is an international consensus once we get the rules approved. So let's see how it develops. And when do you think the first operation can start? I mean, if you look at all these companies that have projects, do you have in mind a specific year where they will be able to start in operation? Yeah. So as, as I say, 2024, 2025, they're saying they're hoping these regulations w will be done. Mm -hmm. But there is a company called the Metals Company that says there was a thing that was triggered called the two-year rule, which is the original rules that were set up when an ISA was set up. If the regulations are not done within two years, then a company can submit an application and it has to be considered. And that two-year deadline has passed. So I think the metals company is saying they're going to take more time to do environmental assessments, but next year they could think about submitting application. And I think the ISA would have to consider it. All that is to say is the clock is ticking on these regulations and we could see 2025 the company starts to begin exploitation production. As I say, it's a very complicated discussion. So let's see. Thanks very much, Henry. It was fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Great questions.